significant day to me um, because today is the day, Lord willing, if Jesus doesn't come back before the service is over, when I finish our first trip all the way through the Bible. It's been nine and a half years or something like that, but today we finish. <laughs> and finally now we can teach something other than the Bible. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> No, but it's exciting. We'll be starting right back through it again um, here in another few weeks. But how many of you, curiously, how many of you were here when I started Genesis? Raise your hand. Wow, a lot of people. There's people I haven't chased off. That's cool. <laughs> but actually, what we're going to do after we finish up today, um, the next five weeks, my plan is, Lord willing, uh, to talk a little bit about what the church is, and in particular, because we make such a big deal about the Bible, I want to talk about what the Bible teaches should be the result in your life of studying the Bible. There are a lot of ways that you can study the Bible and come up with some really bad conclusions, but the Bible's very specific about the effect that the Bible should have on you. And it's so important to us as a church, as we will then begin again going through the Bible, starting with Genesis, this time, I'm not getting any younger, so we're going to go through in one year. And then following that, if we're still around, maybe a four or five year clip to go through it the next time. But, uh, but the question that we'll be asking over the next few weeks is, so what should this look like in someone's life? and the kind of results that we should expect if we're reading it and studying it properly. So essentially, what are we hoping that our church looks like and each of us individually as a result of the interaction that we have with the Word of God? So I'm excited about that study, but I'm also excited about having accomplished something. The bouquet of flowers here, you don't normally see flowers in front of our pulpit, but um, these were courtesy of uh, Richard McIntosh and the people at K-Wave to congratulate us for finishing the Bible. So that was a sweet... That was a sweet gesture. So when we finish the Bible again, I'm hoping they'll send us another one. Because <laughs> these will be looking kind of sad a year from now. But um, I love this second half of Revelation chapter 22. Because in this passage... I mean, we see Jesus describing himself, talking about who he is and what he does, and ultimately about his heart. He reveals his heart to us. And this is so important, and he winds up the Bible by doing this. And so since the book of Revelation is technically called the revelation of Jesus Christ, then when we read this, we want to find out who Jesus is. And nowhere in the entire Bible do I see that laid out more clearly than here in the end of the book of Revelation. Now, in case you don't know, Revelation is not only the last book in our Bible, but it was the last book written of the Bible. It was written at about 100 AD. And so it was the final piece of the puzzle in order to complete the whole, what we call the canon of Scripture, the whole assortment of the books that comprise the inspired Word of God. So the 66th of 66 books being written, and here we see Jesus. And so as we look from verse 12 through verse 21, these last 10 verses of the Bible, 
We're going to see Jesus declaring, this is who I am. On the basis of who I am, this is what I do. And then ultimately, here's my heart. Here's what makes me tick. Here's, here's what I want you to discover from my self-revelation. And so, can't think of anything more important to, to look at than these verses. Jesus, in these verses several times, describes himself by saying, I am this. Here is what I am. Now that is more than just self-description. I can say, I am Dave Rolf, I am a pastor, I am all sorts of other things. And you could provide some of your own descriptions of me that I might not make of myself because I don't like to put myself down that badly. But for me to say I am isn't the same as for Jesus to say I am. Because in the scriptures, the, the simple being verb, I am, is what God used to describe himself. And, and from way back when Moses was called to deliver the children of Israel, and he goes, when they asked me who told me to do this, what shall I say? God said, you tell them that I am. And that word I am became the personal name of God. The word Yahweh or Jehovah, or in our version, usually it says Lord in all capital letters. It's a word that essentially means he is. So he is apart from everything else. He is whatever he wants to be. He is always present. He just exists. Nothing caused him, and he doesn't need anything. He is self-sufficient. Now, this created a real issue when Jesus Christ came along because he had the nerve to declare, I am. And man, the, the Jewish religious leaders just went nuts over that. He made a, the statement, he said, before Abraham was, I am. They're like, what? You're, 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 you're blasphemous. You're saying that you're God. And he goes, it's what I said. He, and then he also would say, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He used that term so many times to declare and to reveal that the, the ever-present, ever-self-existent God, here's what he is. Now, here in the final book of the Bible, in the final chapter of that book, in the final half of the book, we see some revelations from God as Jesus says, I am. And these are important for us to look at. Um, in verse 12 first, he says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. So he says, I'm the one who's coming, and I am the one who is rewarding. That is, I am the judge. Now, We've talked before, earlier in Revelation, about the fact that he rewards according to what we do. Now, this isn't talking about your eternal destiny at this point. What he's talking about is there is a time when, to everyone, he, Jesus is the one who will pronounce judgment to them. Now, for a Christian, 
This happens at what we call the, the judgment seat of Christ or the, the Bema seat judgment. It's all about just rewards. And that's what he's talking about here, giving every man according. My reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. You can read 2 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 3 to see more details about this aspect of his rewarding. But remember, he is saying, I'm the judge. I'm the one who is coming. Here come to judge. And then he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the A to Z, if you will. I am the beginning and the end. I am the first and the last. Now, those are all different ways of saying, I've always been here and I will always be here. Nothing caused me. Nothing was here before me. I am the one responsible for everything. It's the strongest description you could have of Jesus saying, I am God. I'm the one who's coming. I am the one who judges. I am God. That's why I do this. That's, that's why I can make the statements that I'm saying, because I'm God. Now, you might go, well, wait a minute. He, he, just by him saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the A to Z, I'm the first and the last. You know, why does that mean necessarily that he is God? Well, if you read the book of Revelation, we see in several places that this is definitely and clearly identified. And just to see one example, go over to Revelation chapter 1, when this book started. And in verse 8, Revelation 1, 8. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, and by the way, in the oldest uh, manuscripts, it actually says, says the Lord God, and that's probably what it should say, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, is the one who declares, I am Almighty God. Now, you cannot, if all we had of the Bible was the book of Revelation, you could never question the fact that Jesus is God. He makes this declaration so clearly in this book in so many places. So to say, well, I think he might be a God, I think he might be becoming a God, I think he might be a kind of a God with a little G, you just aren't reading your Bible. He is the Almighty God. The beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. So again, back to Revelation 22, Jesus reveals that he's coming, he is rewarding, and he is Alpha and Omega. He is God. Now skip down to verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. Now this whole book was a letter written to all the churches, to the people who have given their lives to Jesus Christ, or part of the body of Christ. Now Jesus is saying, not only am I God, not only am I judge, not only am I coming, I'm the guy who wrote this book. I stand behind and testify to this book. Now this causes me to have a great reverence for the book of Revelation. I can begin to understand why from the very beginning in chapter 1, he promised a blessing to people who study this book, as we have done. Because of all the other books in the New Testament, 
Even the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that talk all about Jesus, we don't have Jesus talking about the book. We don't have Jesus saying, this is the Gospel of Matthew, and I'm standing behind it. But the book of Revelation, he goes, I'm the one that is saying this book is a revelation of me. And that's, that's mind-blowing, really, that he is putting his stamp of authorization on this book. Now, that isn't to say that, that other books are lesser in some way. It's just that if you thought that Revelation was a book that you could kind of blow off, or you could just go, I don't really get it. Man, I can't wait till we get to Genesis again. The book of Revelation, Jesus says, I'm the guy that wrote it. <laughs> I'm behind it. I am the testifier of these things. And then he says, I am, again in verse 16, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Now, these, both of these terms are used in the Old Testament to refer to the Messiah. So now again, what Jesus is saying is, I'm the one who wrote the book, and the book is about me. All of the prophecies, all of the predictions, everything that had been declared from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16, where the promise was said that there's one who is a seed of a woman who is finally going to come and smash the head of Satan, although Satan will bruise his heel. His, Satan will be destroyed forever. The one who is coming to make everything that's wrong right, the Messiah, the one who is to come. Jesus is going, I am declaring this book, and I'm also telling you, the book's about me. I am the one that it's been talking about for 66 books. It's all about me, the root and the offspring of David, the son of David who would sit on his throne forever. The bright morning star, the one who the prophets declared would someday come as, this, as the first star that you see in the morning to go, here we go. Finally, there's hope. Finally, somebody can fix what's wrong with this world. Jesus is going, that's me. And then down in verse 20, we also see the one who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. That's the, the Aramaic word, Maranatha, transliterated across, Lord, come. And so he says, I am the one who, again, is coming quickly. I'm the one who you are expecting. I'm the one who you are desiring to come. I'm the culmination of all of history, is what he's declaring. And so we see, wow. That's a lot. Who is Jesus? Well, he's God. He's judge. He's Messiah. He's the writer of Scripture and the subject of Scripture. And he is the one who says, I can come at any time. Count on it. Be ready for it. We talked about this last week. And as we talked about how the first half of this chapter is all ultimately about the imminent return of Christ, the fact that he could come at any time. So now here in the end, he's going, that's me that you're talking about. So this is who he is, and that's a lot. But the second thing that I said we want to look at is, what does he do on the basis of who he is? Because if we define who he is, now you go, well, so what? 
So this is who you are. What do you do? And he, he declares this. First of all, in, in verses 12 and 13, he said that he's coming to reward, that he is God, and therefore he is the judge. Now check out verse 14. Blessed are those who do his commandments, or the older manuscripts say, blessed are those who wash their garments. So the idea is, whichever it is, it's blessed are those whose sins are forgiven, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. We read about this in the last couple chapters. There's a future that God has set up and this great tree of life, this abundant provision for all of eternity that exists in the city that is prepared, the new Jerusalem. So Jesus says, because I'm God and because I'm judge, I am the one who controls access to your future in heaven. I am the one who can tell you how to get to heaven. I'm the, I'm the one who has the key. But then he goes on in verse 15 and says, but outside, or that is those who are excluded, are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. So he is also the one who declares who doesn't get to heaven. Now the basis, the Bible makes it really clear, is based on whether or not we've trusted Jesus Christ. It's not about what we've done, but because he is judge, he can say, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and your robes have been washed, then you come to the new Jerusalem. But if you refuse because you would rather live a lie and you would rather remain in your sin, then you are excluded from the heavenly city. Now, if you're a dog lover, it might disturb you that he says that dogs don't go to heaven. Um, the word dogs here that's used, it, in those days a dog was a scavenger and, and just a really mangy mutt. And, and so, and sorry if you love mangy mutts too, but they use that as an expression for people who would just sap off others, people who would just be bottom feeders and things like that. So that and they would describe a lot of Gentiles that way. Um, so that, he's not saying dogs won't be in heaven. Like I've said before, if you get to heaven and you want a dog, you can have a dog. My personal opinion is that there probably will be dogs in heaven, as well as every other kind of animal that's ever existed, but they'll all be tame and you can play with all of them. That's the case in the millennium, for sure. Kids can play with a poisonous snake and they won't get bit. You know, a lion and a lamb will get along fine. So to me, you, if your choice, if you could have a cool lion or a dog, a poodle, I, I'm thinking I'll go for the lion, but whatever. <laughs> That's not what this is saying. What this is saying is people who decide to stay in their sin and not have their sin dealt with don't go to heaven. They're outside of heaven. It doesn't mean they're like right outside the gates of the New Jerusalem trying to get in and there's a bouncer at the door that won't let them in. No, the Bible makes it clear they're in the lake of fire. They've had their opportunities and because they rejected Jesus Christ and showed that they preferred sin over forgiveness, well, they're taken care of. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ offered himself as a sacrifice. 
And if you reject that, then he has every right to say, sorry, you don't make it. Now, if he is choosing me to go to heaven based on how good I am, that, that would seem unfair. But he's not doing it. He's doing it based on how good he is and whether or not I am willing to have him be my savior. And so Jesus is going, this is what I do. Here's who I am. I'm God. I'm judge. And here's what I do. I determine who goes to heaven and who goes to hell based on how they've responded to my commandments, to my word, to what I declare in scripture. Now, as we go on down in verse 16, where he says, I'm the guy that testifies these things, and I am the Messiah that the Bible has been talking about. Then he goes, because I wrote it, and because it's about me, look at this. Look down in verse 18. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Wow, this is pretty serious. But remember who's talking. The guy that wrote the book. The guy who the book is about. And he's saying, do not mess with this book. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Revere it for what it is. Respect it for what it is. A pretty sober declaration. Now, you know, you want to be careful not to make this say more than it is. Like, there are some people who would say, you shouldn't read anything but the Bible. Because if you read anything other than the Bible, you're adding to the words of this book, and therefore, you're going to get the judgments of the book. I mean, it would be pretty hard to teach the Bible without saying something other than just what it says. I could just get up here and read 10 verses to you and dismiss you, and you know, then I don't get the plagues of the book, but Eddie would get them because some of the songs he sang didn't come verbatim from the book. So this isn't, this isn't saying that there's nothing that you can supplement, there's nothing else you can read, nothing else you can do. It, it also, I don't think, necessarily implies that you need to be careful that you don't leave out something. Like, oh no, I've never read the book of Nahum. I was sick that week. Or, you know, oh gosh, I don't, you know, I'm not sure if some of these stories are real or not. Or I'm not, you know, I don't know exactly what to do with that verse or this thing. Or even, well, the, the last part of the, of the last book of Mark, Mark 16, I don't even know if that was in the original or if it was added later. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. Um, certainly that's not going to send you to hell and cause you to lose your salvation. That wouldn't that'd be inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. Here's what I think he is saying. is that and, and the book of life is the place where if your name is in it, you go to heaven. So this is pretty serious, besides just getting plagues added to you. But here's, what I, here's the way I understand this. I hope I'm not adding to it. But here's the thing. When you begin to pick and choose with the Bible, you are getting in dangerous territory. You are getting into a place where you are deciding which parts of the Bible are God's word and which aren't, and that's dangerous. 
if there is a center to the core of my faith, it is that I believe in the inerrancy of the whole scriptures. I believe this book cover to cover. I even believe the leather is genuine because it says so. Because, because I need something that I can trust. I need a basis for my epistemology or for my understanding of truth. Now, there are people who tinker with it and tamper with it. And to me, that's kind of dangerous. Now, I understand that there are things in the Bible that people might interpret wrong. So I'm not saying that my interpretation of Scripture is always right, uh, nor yours, certainly. Um, I'm not saying that, that, that there are no cases where in, in writing down the Scriptures and copying it, that there weren't some errors. I mean, I, I'm not stupidly just acting like this Bible, the New King James that I have right here, is, and the way I teach it, this is perfect. So you need to listen to all my studies, and that'll be the total revelation of God. I'm not saying that. But here's the thing. If I begin to say that, you know, some of the Bible, I don't know if it's true or not. I'm not sure if I believe that part. I don't know if that one ought to really be here. Well, which parts am I going to exclude? I'm going to exclude the ones that challenge me. I'm going to exclude the ones that make me feel guilty. I'm going to exclude the ones that I don't understand. And so, you know, for some people, they look at what the Bible says about women and their role in ministry. And they go, that just doesn't seem to jive with our current understanding of feminism. And so I think Paul was just kind of speaking in his flesh. I think that part was wrong. Now, if that's what you want to believe, fine. But where do you stop? And, I, and I've had friends, dear friends, who, who begin by going, you know what? I'm thinking that some of the miracles were just stories. And, and I'm thinking that some of these things were misunderstandings on the part of the writers of Scripture. I think this is just writings of men. And I think it's inspirational, but in terms of believing that every word of this book was, was God-breathed and inspired, I don't know. Well, eventually what happens is, it, it, okay, you can start by going, I don't know if a whale really swallowed a guy. Okay, you know, you can understand how that might be tough to swallow. Um, and then you go, did Jesus really feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes, or were a bunch of people inspired to give because this one little kid gave five loaves and two fishes, and they all got their food out, and they did. You know, that might have been the case, or maybe they were mistaken, or maybe this was a wonderful story that was passed down. So you begin to do that. Then you go, did he really make blind people see, or did he actually just rub something in their eyes that was medicinal and allowed them to see? Or did he inspire in them their own faith that caused them to realize, oh, I'll be darned, I, I could see all along. I could have walked, I just didn't know I could, and he pulled me up and now I'm doing it. Where do you go from there? The biggest miracle in the Bible is the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Why would you have a problem with a whale swallowing a guy and not have a problem with a guy raising himself from the dead? So what happens inevitably with people who start down the road of picking and choosing on the Bible is they end up without faith. They end up walking away from that which even they may have once believed in 
because they've cut the Bible up so much and segmented it and picked and chose, kind of like Thomas Jefferson did. Jefferson's one of my American heroes. I, I think he is as responsible for the greatness of our nation as any individual person that there was. Brilliant man. And yet, he wrote his own Bible. What he actually did is he took a Bible and he cut it up and he pasted the parts that he believed were true onto pages. And he left out the parts that he didn't believe in. It's called the Jefferson Bible. You can go online and see it today. But he eliminated the miracles, eliminated teachings that Jesus said that he thought, that ah, doesn't sound like something Jesus would say. And he ends up with a Bible with the gospel that ended with Jesus dying because to Jefferson, a resurrection was preposterous. Oh, he believed that Jesus was kind of alive somewhere. But for him to come back and talk and eat and touch people, no, let's face it, that's ridiculous. Well, this is what happens when you decide that you have a right to choose which parts of the Bible that you will believe in. Inevitably, you will cut the legs out from under your own faith. And that's what I think Jesus is saying here, that the pathway to not accepting the truth of Scripture or the pathway of supplementing Scripture with other books that are also needed in order to understand it, going, yeah, you need the Bible, but you know there are other books and later revelations that really help us to discover this more. As soon as we say that, we are dancing on dangerous territory because we may end up eliminating that which actually saves us. Ultimately, doubting the Word of God will inevitably take away the salvific efficacy or the effective work of salvation that happens from the simple gospel. And so when you do that, you end up with, yeah, you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to do good works. Whoops, you just added something. Now, is the gospel actually the gospel if you have to do something else in addition to what the Bible says you have to do in order to be saved? I would say not. And ultimately, people are, can find out that they aren't even saved because they supplemented or they extracted elements that are essential to salvation. The only way to protect against that is just go, you know what, I believe this whole book. I don't understand it all. I'm not sure what the proper interpretation is of parts of it, but I will not mess with that book. And that's what I think Jesus is saying. I wrote the book. The book is about me. Don't mess with it. Now, this whole thing of having your name you know, taken out of the book of life, God will take away his part from the book of life, is confusing to a lot of people. Earlier in Revelation, it talked about not having your name blotted out of the book of life. And there are people who want to adhere to a very strong doctrine of what's called eternal security, um, such that this really presents a problem for them. Um, you know, Jesus says some things that are the reason why people believe in eternal security. He says, when, when you've been given to me, you're not going to be lost. You're in my Father's hand. No one is able to take you out of my Father's hand. That's a very strong declaration and a good reason to believe that, hey, I'm secure. When I get saved, I am with him for eternity. You know, and so then people go, other people will say, so the way you explain people who seem to be saved and then they're lost is to say they were never saved in the first place. 
Like 1 John chapter 2 says, they went out from among us because they weren't really of us. But this is a real controversy because of passages like this, because of places, several places in the book of Hebrews that warn about falling away and not being able to be renewed to repentance like Hebrews 6. So how do you deal with this? Well, people who want to have a very solid doctrine of eternal security will take this passage and others like it and say, you're misunderstanding the book of life. Because what the book of life is, in those days, whenever somebody was born, their name was put in a book called the book of the living that each town had like a census. And when you die, your name was taken out of the book. So they're saying the book of life isn't a place where God puts your name in it, unless it, because it says that our names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. So that must mean that he knows who's going to be alive and he gives you a name. But your name is put there. And when you die denying Jesus Christ, when you reject him finally and completely, then your name is blotted out of the book of life. And so what he is saying is God won't allow you to die apart from Christ. Now this kind of solves the problem. It's a little bit of an argument from silence, but a lot of people are satisfied with this belief. And there are people like John MacArthur and others who feel like, yes, yeah, this, this makes sense. But when you read everything that the Bible says about the book of life, I just have to tell you, there are some places that really concern me about this particular interpretation. For instance, over in Philippians chapter 4, Paul's talking about some ladies as being co-laborers with Christ and you know how these ladies are so special and valued. And he says, whose names are written in the book of life. So if the book of life just means everybody who hasn't died without Christ yet, why would he say that as if it's something great? Why would he say that as a compliment? Their names are in the book of life. Well, yeah, everybody who hasn't died without Christ's name is written in the book of life. It kind of doesn't make sense. But then in, in um, Revelation chapter 13, it ta and a couple other places, it talks about during the tribulation, the people who are rejecting Christ and worshiping the beast, and it says their names aren't in the book of life. But wait a minute, they haven't died yet. They're still having a message extended to them. And so you see the problem? You have people who are alive who are not in the book of life, and you have people who are alive who are in the book of life, and ultimately where you end up is what determines your eternal destiny. So I just don't think it's clear. And I, and I again, in the context, Jesus is going, don't mess with the word. So I'm not going to mess with the word in order to make you feel good about your theology. So if you want to be set in whatever you believe, you want to believe that once saved, always saved, or you want to believe somebody can lose their salvation, I'm not disturbed by either one of those. For me, I'm secure. I'm abiding in Christ. What he has done for me, there's nothing in this world that would ever cause me to leave him, and I feel perfectly safe. Now, if I get to heaven and find out you were positionally safe anyway and you couldn't have been lost and somehow you misunderstood some of these verses, I'm fine with it. But if I find out that people can actually be in a relationship with Christ and then choose to walk away from that, one thing I know for sure, it's not some sin that causes you to lose your salvation. 
A lot of people believe that, oh, I thought a bad thought, I did something terrible, and therefore I lost my salvation. Clearly that's not the case. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. And so get that out of the way, that's eliminated. But as to what this means, what the book of life actually is, and how this works, all he's saying is, mess with my word and you may fall into this category. So don't mess with his word. He wrote it. It's about him. Believe it as it is. Interpret it the best you can. Don't tinker with it, is what he's saying. And that's a sober warning that I think we should hear. And then on on the basis of that he is coming quickly, down there in verse 20, really quickly, it's on that basis of him being the one who is coming that he says that then the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The one who is coming is coming because he wants to show grace to you. And he wants you to know his grace now. Now, with all of this, I said there's a third thing. And, and sorry, we ran out of time, so I'm not going to be able to tell you God's heart. No, I'm going to say it anyway. And we'll just get out late. Um, here's the deal. Through all of this, his heart is depicted so powerfully Jesus doesn't want us just to know about him. He doesn't want us to just come to his word and go, okay, yeah, he's a Messiah, he's God, his word is holy, all this kind of stuff. He wants us to know him personally. And you don't know him just by knowing about him. The demons know that he's Messiah. They know that he is God. They know that he is coming back. They know all this stuff. They know that his word is true but they don't know him. And so here in this passage, we see his heart. And this is, I think, where this is the core of that which he wants to communicate. And he's already demonstrated that his heart is, I want you guys to be rewarded. I want to give you the right to the tree of life. He is the one who designed heaven so that you could be there. And his heart is for you to go there. It's why he's laying all of this out for us, because he's going, I want you to see it. I want you to taste it. I want you to experience it. That's his heart. And then as we go down, as I said, his heart is to give you his grace as well. His heart is to have your name in the book of life, to have you go to heaven. But his declaration of his heart is best stated in verse 17. And this is where we're going to close. It says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts, Come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. That's the core of this entire book. That's the core of the whole revelation of God is for God to reach to you and say, come on, I want you to taste the water of life. It's free. You don't have to earn it. I want to draw you to me. There was a time when you didn't know him. And the reason you came to him is because you heard him saying, come on. Now, you may have heard it through somebody else telling you, come on, because it says, let him who hears say, come. Most of us heard about Jesus because somebody else heard him calling them and then they reached out to us. It's why it's so important for us to reach out to others because God's heart 
is that we extend this invitation to everyone who's thirsty, to everyone who really desires to, to, to know God and to have salvation. It's why it's important that we invite people to church. You don't really care about your non-Christian friends if you don't invite them to church. Because, and I know you're going, oh, I don't think they'll come. Well, how do you know if you haven't invited them? If you've invited them and they don't come, well, maybe they're not ready, but at least you've given them an invitation. It's why we invite people to attend the Harvest Crusade, because it's a time that's specifically directed toward calling to those who are willing to come. How important is that? It is his heart. And if we are not inviting people to come to Jesus, then we are not experiencing his heart in the way that we should. We're like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. My brother's lost because he's a dirtbag. And actually, even when he comes, I don't want him to be there. The dad was sitting out on the porch watching the horizon because his heart was for his son to come home. And that's the father's heart. And if we don't understand that, we don't understand anything. If we like, yeah, I get the whole eternal security thing. I get the whole, you know, the Bible, don't touch it, don't mess with it. It's inerrant. I get the whole heaven thing. And you don't get his heart. And, and your heart does not beat with the passion of his heart. As he goes, if you want me, come. If you want to experience the, the water of life, I, I came so that you would have life and that more abundantly. If you want it, I'm inviting you. That's who I am over and above everything else. And that's the invitation that we get from Jesus Christ. And that is the heart of God. And that is who Jesus is at his core. He is the one who is saying, as the spirit and the bride say, come, as people who hear say, come, let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, take the water of life. It's free. What a glorious invitation. He doesn't say, if you're smart, then come. He doesn't say, if you clean up your life, you can come. He doesn't say, if you're, if you're honest, then come. If you're innocent, then come. If you're, if you're a particular economic level or a racial background or your, your, your nationality is this, then come. No, he goes, just everybody. If you want to come, come. Now you go, well, maybe I don't want to. Okay, don't. He's not going to force you. But his heart is for you to come. Understand that. That is the core of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is obviously the core of Christianity. And if we don't understand anything else from this book, it ends up, it turns out, this whole book is an invitation. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ, I don't know why. And I don't, how, how could you turn down this kind of an offer, frankly? I don't get it. I know some people do. There might be people here today who've gone to church for years and years, and yet the truth is you've never tasted the water of life. You've never experienced that abundant life. You've never allowed the Holy Spirit to work in your life. I'm telling you, today, he's inviting you to come. I pray that you'll hear his voice. I pray that you'll believe this is true. This is the essence of all spiritual truth. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, for this beautiful picture of you, 
and for this declaration that you, the God of the universe, the one that the scriptures is about, the one who inspired the scriptures, the one who will judge, the one who is going to come and fix everything that's wrong, that your heart just pounds with a, with a passion for those who are lost. God, I pray that if there are people today who need to come, I pray that you will, you will help them to hear this message clearly, that they would come to you today. And God, if there are people here today who just haven't really invited anyone else, I pray that you would let them know if they've heard and they've found you to be faithful, that they would take the challenge to extend to others an invitation to come. So God, please, just by your spirit, work through this scripture to change lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's all